Church, when the snow comes and we have to miss worship, we miss so much. And so today we're trying to bring some of last Sunday and this Sunday together. And if you have trying to beat the Methodists to lunch at noon, we may be a little over today. So just wanted to let you know that with what we have, we'll do our very best this morning. Would you join me in prayer? May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When we last ended on December 2nd, we ended with a story about Swiss theologian Karl Barth, one of the most influential theologians in the 20th century. And as we continue our journey through Advent, let's hit the refresh button and pick up where we left off. Dr. Bart had a painting of the crucifixion of Jesus on the wall in his study that was painted by the German Renaissance painter Matthias Gruenwald. To the left in the painting is Mary bowing before Jesus, and to the right in the painting there is an image of John the Baptist with his extra-long index finger pointing the onlooker to the cross of Jesus in the center of the painting. It is said that when Dr. Bart would talk with a visitor who came to see him in his study, he would direct them to the painting, and he would acknowledge John the Baptist, and he would say, I want to be that finger. I want to be the sign pointing to the redemption and victory in Jesus Christ. Like Mary, we want to bow in humble submission and adoration of our Lord Jesus. And like John the Baptist, we want to point away from ourselves toward Christ as we seek to be His faithful witnesses. As we said two Sundays ago, we desire to be the sign that Christ has come. We desire to be the sign that love has come. We desire to be the sign that hope is now, and we desire to be the sign that redemption is near. We cannot read the Christmas story without the story of John the Baptist. In all four Gospels, he sets the tone for the proclamation of Jesus Christ. His language is apocalyptic, sometimes hard to understand, signifying the arrival of God. If it were up to me, and it's not, but if it were up to me, I would have made it easier and more sentimental. I would have left out all of the John the Baptist part, and I would have just started with the Christmas story like Linus did in A Charlie Brown Christmas. And there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And you remember the words of the King James as you've heard it sung already. And an angel of the Lord said unto them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then Linus went on to say, That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's how I would have done it. But the Gospels don't begin with a comfortable, sentimental tone at all. Rather, they begin with John the Baptist's warning of right living and coming judgment, which 
I don't particularly like to hear, but that's what the Bible says. A baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that we are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. A writer in this month's issue of Christianity Today states, Advent is out of phase with our time. It encroaches upon us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat uneasy with its stubborn resistance to Christmas cheer. Luke begins his gospel with the story of a couple far beyond childbearing years, Zechariah and Elizabeth. An angel of the Lord spoke to Zechariah and told him that his wife would bear a son. He was to name the boy John. This son would be great in the sight of the Lord. The fourth gospel writer reminds us of this in John 1.8. He himself, speaking of John the Baptist, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. But Luke, the historian, he pays attention to the details that make the gospel story seem more comfortable, maybe a fireside chat as we read through the birth of Jesus narrative. But what if we were to bring today's gospel text into a more current historical context? If you remember what was read earlier when Reese joined me here at the pulpit, there were all sorts of historical figures, political and so forth, religious, that are named. So what if we were to bring the gospel text into a more current historical context, bringing Luke's setting more close to home, maybe? Could it read like this? In the second year of the presidency of Donald Trump, when Ralph Northam was governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, when LeVar Stoney was mayor of the city of Richmond, and when Dorothy Jekyll was chair of the Chesterfield County Board of Supervisors, and when Susie Painter was executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and John Upton, the executive director of the Baptist General Association of Virginia, and Mike Robinson, the executive director of the River City Faith Network, the word of the Lord came to the members of Huguenot Road Baptist Church. And you went out into your neighborhoods, stood on a table in your school cafeteria, and appeared before the board of supervisors proclaiming a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. Suddenly, the beginnings of the Christmas story seem a bit too real, don't they? It's much more comfortable and sentimental to skip the uncomfortable parts and keep it safe. Mostly, I can speak for myself, I don't want the Christmas story too up close and personal. And that's the problem with it, at least for many Christians, it's up close and personal. You mean I need to do some self-examination? I need to confess my sins? I need to apologize to someone whom I've wronged? I need to stop cursing? I need to admit my drinking and abuse of prescription medication? I need to love my Muslim neighbor? And so forth. These are the questions that are upfront and, and personal when we consider applying the gospel text to our context. When we put it into our own place and time, we suddenly realize how audacious and confrontational the Baptist's message was. But I would be quick to say, that was then and this is now. This first century in which John was called to preach and reach was much different place than our postmodern world today. Was it really? 
One writer says, first century civilization was organized into political entities. There were local boards, city officials, regional directors, territorial governors, and heads of state. And the political cult structure was a religious structure. Uh, there was religious leaders who thought they wielded considerable authority. They kind of danced a, a strange dance, if you will. Political leaders tended to leave them alone until the religious leaders threatened to interfere with something that was important to the state. And as today's text highlights, the two groups John the Baptist singles out are those who are, are in power and wealth, like the tax collectors and also the soldiers. So maybe the first century wasn't that different from the 21st century after all. But we can reassure ourselves that a raspy, rugged John the Baptist figure was needed in those days because it was a pre-Christian era, untouched and unmoved by the good news of the gospel. The culture was organized around the pagan gods and uh, political and economic powers of those who are rich, those who live by different rules and standards than the common people. Those with money and status became themselves popular cult figures. So now the differences between the first century and the 21st century are very clear, right? I think, I think you can see where it's going. I argue that like the John the Baptist, that we are living in a pre-Christian era. And you might say, Pastor Bob, not post-Christian? I don't think it's a post-Christian era because post implies that Christianity was something that we had so absorbed that it became part and parcel of popular culture. Can we look honestly at ourselves? Can I look in the mirror honestly and claim that the world around me is post-Christian? I think the real question is, did we ever make it Christian in the first place? And when I say Christian, I'm not arguing a return to Christendom when the goal was to borrow from Walter Brueggemann hegemony, which means power and domination. I'm not talking about the good old days when there were churches on every corner and they were all full. I'm not talking about the days when stores were closed on Sunday and church was the center of the activity. I'm not talking about the concept of build it and they will come. And when Sunday morning was the time when most churches did their evangelism. I, I believe that there are, an, in fact, there are uh, an increasing number of people have no re religious affiliation at all. One survey calls them the nuns and the duns, people who have never been exposed to church, don't want to have anything to do with it, or others who are done with church. When I refer to Christian, I'm implying the visible transformation in people like you and me and communities around us when Christians are truly making a difference, when churches are truly making a difference. Who can look at the gangs of youth that exist on violence and despair and claim to be post-Christian? Who can look at the greed and gluttony of some of the corporate land sharks and claim that we are post-Christian? Who can look at the disparity of the schools in Richmond City and the outside, outside counties and claim that we are post-Christian? Who can look at the food deserts in our city and substandard hotels that, where many people live and the problem of human trafficking on the Jeff Davis corridor and claim that we are post-Christian? Who can look at the lack of public transportation in our county and bus routes that mostly stop at the line and claim that we are post-Christian? 
Who can look at the way that asylum seekers continue to be treated as they try to find safety and protection from violence and extreme poverty? Who can look at the loneliness and hurt in the eyes and smells of those who are shut away in nursing homes and claim that we are post-Christian? Who can look at the Christmas decorations that come out in the stores before the Halloween candy is even finished sold and claim that we are post-Christian? The truth is, That like John the Baptist, you and I are still living in a pre-Christian age. We have yet to be touched, transformed, and fine-tuned into communities that are Christ's bodies. Facing this truth sets us free to do the John the Baptist kind of ministries we are called to. John's message is still the one that we need to hear proclaimed. Prepare the way of the Lord. Are we willing to stand out in the crowd as was John the Baptist? Are we willing to ruffle some feathers as was he? Are we willing to speak out against customs and conventions that defy the ways of the Lord as was John the Baptist? Are we willing to look odd and foolish for the sake of the gospel as was he? Are we willing to live life according to the way, the truth and the life, God's way as was John the Baptist? But if we still do have John the Baptist ministries in a pre-Christian culture, we do now have another chapter to add to John's message that we are a post-resurrection people. We may not be a a post-Christian country, but we as God's people are a post-resurrection people. This pre-Christian culture desperately needs a post-resurrection people. Of course, things have changed since John the Baptist urged the crowds to follow him in a baptism of repentance because Jesus entered into human life as a newborn baby, lived human life as a simple man, died a sacrificial death on the cross, and is now our Savior, and we can offer a message of salvation given and accomplished, offer a baptism not just of repentance but of new life, and offer a hope and love that transcends all human experience. That's why Advent is a season of preparation, brothers and sisters. Christmas is not just the celebration of the birth of a baby. It's the beginning of a chain of events that transforms human existence. In the ancient times when a king was to visit a town or city, roads were prepared for his coming. In the same way John quotes the Isaiah prophet, the, the prophet Isaiah preparing a way for the Lord. Uh, move the earth, get the rocks out of the way. Uh, bring up the, level, the low areas, raise, uh, bring down the high areas, and prepare, prepare a way for His coming. And I, I believe that He's asked us to join that process. That we are signs of this love that has come. How can you and I clear the roads and build bridges so that others might see and know Jesus? And what preparation is necessary that we might be transformed? As verse 10 begs the question, what should we do? What should we do as we seek to be earth movers, construction workers along the road of life? What preparation is necessary that we might be transformed? Will we allow God to fill our potholes and crevices? Will we allow God to cut down our obstacles? Will we allow God to straighten our crooked ways? Will we allow God to 
smooth out the rough spaces. And John had an answer when they said, what shall we do? If you have two shirts, share one with someone else. If you have food, share it. Tax collectors, what should we do? Don't extort people. The soldiers, what about us? Don't force people to give you money. Don't lie about them. Be satisfied with the pay that you get. What shall we do? We shall repent and be baptized to bear fruit worthy of repentance. We shall do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. What shall we do? And everything, as Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Christmas is not just recognizing God's gift of the incarnation. It is also our acknowledgement of what this incarnation now means for every man, woman, and child. The new word will reach and preach to this old world. And that, that word among a post-resurrection people to a pre-Christian world is Christ is born, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the story of John the Baptist who stood out in the crowd and then stepped aside, not drawing attention to himself, but pointing to Jesus. Father, help us to be signs in our world today pointing others to Jesus. And help us to do the kind of preparation that he speaks of, that John does, as we ready ourselves for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, and as we continue to go out into the highways and byways to help make straight the way of Christ to those who hear the good news. Let us not be afraid to tell others about Jesus and what he's done for us and how he can bring peace and make this world a better place. And I pray that those who are gathered here today as we contemplate decisions that you are calling us to make, that you would help us to hear your still, small voice and respond and have no fear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.